I want to take a quick second to let you guys know there's some cool Turning Point USA stuff going on and coming up. So first and foremost, the new episode of Debate Night just dropped. You guys got to check this out. So Charlie sits down across the table debating literally an Antifa professor, Rachel Bittekoffer. Some of this stuff, it's completely, to my mind, kind of insane, but you wanna go and actually watch this thing and listen as they go back and forth on all these things about critical race theory, systemic racism, all these topics that we discuss, they go head to head. And this thing, I just watched some of it, it gets absolutely heated. The other thing that I wanna mention that's coming up very soon, very soon. I know it's March, but guess what? Within a couple of weeks, you guys blink, boom, it'll be June. That's summer. It's coming around June 2nd to 4th, Dallas, Texas. It is the Young Women's Leadership Summit. This has grown to be one of the bigger turning point events out there. Over 3,000 people. They all show up. It's right down Dallas, Texas. So make sure you go make your reservations today because this thing is going to fill up. And do not come around here asking me to get you tickets once it is sold out. So go to turningpointusa.com, check out Debate Night, and reserve your seats for the Young Women's Leadership Summit. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome aboard today's edition of Human Events Daily, powered by Turning Point USA, today's top stories. The New York Times has finally admitted, at long last, that the information on the Biden laptop, the hard drive, that we recovered two years ago is authentic. Next, war in Ukraine enters day 23. We're going to give you a full ground update from there. Third, 30% of Ukrainian refugees are reportedly from other countries. And then finally, Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson. We're going to dig into some of the rulings and the way that Senator Hawley is also looking at this for her upcoming confirmation hearing. All of this more ahead, Human Events Daily. Well, the New York Times has finally decided to come out and admit something that we all knew from the start, that the Hunter Biden laptop was in fact authentic. That the crimes, the corruption, the depravity and degeneracy that were found on there, the connections to oligarchs from Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, China, was all real. Of course it was real, it was obviously real. I first got a copy of that hard drive in the fall of 2020. We went through it, reported it publicly. We talked about everything that was in there. I also offered publicly, day after day after day, I'd go in War Room and talk about this. I said, Jake Tapper from CNN, if you want a copy of this, come on down. Maggie Haberman, if you want a copy of this, I will make you a copy of the hard drive and hand it over to you. They never once took me on on it. None of them did, of course not, why would they? They smeared it as Russian disinformation. They said it was all lie. They said none of it was coming true. Yet we had emails, we had files, we had text messages, financial documents, we had everything. We had everything from the hard drive from hell. And that's really what this was. And it certainly was for them. But it's not just about that. It's also about the way the United States and the way the media and the national security state responded to all of this. They called it very specifically Russian disinformation. They didn't say it was China. They didn't say it was faked. 
They didn't say, you know, Jack Posobiec and Steve Bannon, Raheem Kassam and all these guys made it up. No, 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 no. They said it was a Kremlin-backed plot, and they said that the Russians were doing it. Here's Jen Psaki saying just that just a couple of months ago. The president has said, and you have tweeted, that allegations of wrongdoing based on files pulled from Hunter Biden's laptop are Russian disinformation. There is a new book by a political reporter that finds some of the files on there are genuine. Is the White House still going with Russian disinformation? I think it's broadly known and widely known, Peter, that there was a broad range of Russian disinformation back in 2020. So did any of these stalwart defenders of truth these adults in the room, the experts. Remember, Jen Psaki came from the State Department, the neurotic millennial West Wing LARPer. Did they ever consider the fact that while they were deliberately lying about a nuclear power to help themselves win an election and then also help themselves to demonize their domestic opponents, that they were provoking their foreign adversaries by lying about Russia deliberately. Did they ever even stop to consider the fact that they could have been taken as a threat by the Kremlin? Because obviously that's what ended up happening. You were threatening them over and over and over while your military was training within the boundaries of Ukraine, right on their border, and now you're accusing them of crime over and over and over, the same way that you were accusing them of crime for years. And look, I'm not saying that that's what happened, but you have to understand how it might come across to the person on the other side of the table. And that's obviously how they took it. They took it as a threat. They took it as a provocation. You poked the bear. And now the people of Ukraine are paying the price for your recklessness, for your insanity, and you're not standing with them. You walked them down the primrose path, and now you're leaving them to their fate. Cut and run. Yeah, sure, you'll, you'll uh, ship some money over some supplies, make sure the arms dealers get paid, make sure that the NGOs get to skim. What was, that? what was that phrase again? Oh yeah, 10% for the big guy. Yeah, you're gonna make sure that the big guy gets his 10%. And all the while, it's the people in the middle, the civilians, the families, the children. Those are the ones that the shells fall on. Those are the ones that have to see tanks rolling down their streets because you couldn't stop lying. You couldn't stop provoking. And you couldn't simply be an adult and tell the truth. Look, I gotta tell you guys, Tanya Tay, my wife, made us some of these steaks from Good Ranchers. She pulled them out. So our whole fridge, right, our whole freezer is just full of of meat right now, just full of this frozen meat from Good Ranchers. We got the entire box of it. So we've got steaks, we've got ribeyes, T-bones, strips, everything is there. Plus we got some chicken, we got some seafood, right? So every time we go for dinner, she said, well, what, what do you wanna grab? She pulled out these massive steaks the other day and then she put some special sauce on it. And I gotta tell you, ladies and gentlemen, 
that was the best steak I've ever had in my home, under my own roof, in my entire life. I kid you not, I'm looking at her over this thing like, what did you do? And she's like, well, it's the Good Rancher steak, and I just put some special sauce on it. I'm like, wow. I don't know what the special sauce is, and I'm sorry that I can't offer you the special sauce. I'm gonna have to do something else to, to get that as an offer out there. But what I can tell you is that if you go to goodranchers.com POSO, if you use promo code POSO for $30 off, and by the way, free shipping, that's right, an entire case of meat, frozen meat, with free shipping delivered straight to your door, right? Keep in mind, pre-trimmed, pre-marinated uh, chicken breasts, so delicious, it's all organic, they're totally grass-fed, you don't have to worry about spending time at the grocery store anymore, it's very simple, goodranchers.com slash POSO, remember, that's $30 off with promo code POSO and you get the free shipping, you guys are gonna have the same experience I did, I guarantee you will love this food. Так получилось, что начало операции совпало, совершенно случайно совпало с днем рождения одного из наших выдающихся военнонаправленных. So what you just heard there, that is Russian President Vladimir Putin holding a massive rally in the center of Moscow to commemorate what today is. Today in Russia is the eighth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea, or as they call it, the reunification, right, of Crimea with the rest of Russia. So a huge rally uh, held there in Moscow. Today, though, going back to Ukraine, let's explain what's happening on the ground. Of course, this comes from ISW. Russian forces continued to make steady territorial gains in and around Mariupol, and they are increasingly targeting the residential areas of the city. What they're doing, they've divided the entire city up of Mariupol into four quadrants. I think, by the way, I think our program is actually one of the first ones to correctly analyze this, that they first cut it north-south along the river basin and then east-west along that main road, the M14, uh, down the center of Mariupol. And so uh, we have seen images now of thousands and thousands of civilians that have finally been able to leave Mariupol. It does also look, if you watch some of these videos, it looks like the DPR militia, the separatist groups, are actually vetting people as they come out. They're you know, pulling up their shirts, they're checking for tattoos, they're looking for members of that neo-Nazi Azov battalion, so they usually have uh, tattoos that would signify that. They're also checking trunks, they're looking for weapons, looking for improvised explosives, because they are worried, of course, about terrorist attacks or militia members getting out. But you, ha you are still seeing extremely heavy fighting. Um, also, last night, and I saw a lot of reporting on this, and ISW has it as well, Ukrainian forces northwest of Kiev and also in the Nikolaev area launched several counterattacks and inflicted heavy damage on Russian forces. So these are probably the largest counterattacks that we've actually seen since the beginning of this war, since um, all of these movements are being made. And of course, that area, I want to keep people to understand, the Russian operation is focused on that eastern flank of the country, but what they're doing in Kiev is keeping so many of those Ukrainian defenders and Ukrainian forces bogged down in Kiev so that they aren't able to support the rest of the country, right? This is very similar, by the way, to Grant's strategy when he attacked in the, South, in the, uh, the Civil War, attacked the South, because when you have more forces, you create this massive wider front. And, you know, I know everybody's looking at those maps where they can see that Ukraine is much smaller than the territory of Russia. Of course, Russia's the largest country in the world, but 
Also understand that Ukraine is a massive country. So Ukraine, if you put it on the map, it would stretch between New York City on the East Coast all the way out to Chicago. So this is a massive, massive front, and the Ukrainian army has to defend all of it, while the Russians are the ones who are invading, they're the ones pushing in. So because they have superior numbers, what they're doing is they're advancing on multiple fronts and uh, demanding that the Ukrainian forces have to defend all of them at once. So if you keep though that strategic focus on the city of Kiev that enables them to make like it splits their forces right basic military strategy so it splits their forces and then has um has to make them defend all of that territory at the same time simultaneously that's the operation that you're seeing here uh we're also seeing uh reports of ukraine ukrainian forces repelling russian operations around kharkiv and there's reports that they killed a regimental commander a lot of these reports they go back and forth and i do also say that when you see these headlines coming out of ukraine remember it is the 24 hour rule but maybe even 48 hour rule in effect because we're not sure exactly what's going on uh, Ukrainian intelligence, they're putting out that Russia may have extended its entire or expended its entire store of precision cruise missiles in the first 20 days of the invasion. That being said, uh, you know, we're not sure exactly sure how many they have in reserve. And keep in mind, they've also got their naval elements involved in this. So Russian forces we're now seeing have deployed unspecified reserve elements of the First Guard's tank army and Baltic Fleet naval infantry to northeastern Ukraine on March 17th. What does this mean? Right? You could potentially be seeing a reserve force that could conduct an amphibious operation along the Black Sea. Uh, they could be conducting that in addition in support of their assault on Mariupol, or you could see that, by the way, of, uh, of a likelihood of a Russian amphibious assault on the city of Odessa. Now, actually, one thing that I've noticed in terms of all of this, it looks like the uh, Odessa seems to be more of a feint right now because you're seeing, uh, you know, this ha has happened a couple of times over the past three weeks where you've seen Russian naval forces, you know, they'll they'll conduct presence operations, they'll come very close to the coast of Odessa, and then they'll go back out to sea. What does that mean? Right, that's a feint. They're not going to conduct an amphibious operation or amphibious landing on Odessa without having their troops in the area. So their troops currently in the south are near Kherson. You've got those troops all up by Kiev. They do not have the land elements nearby to Odessa um, to conduct any type of major operation. But what they're doing as well, it's splitting the force of the Ukrainians. So they're forcing the Ukrainian army or more Ukrainian forces to have to stay behind in Odessa on that port city in that coastal town, very strategic, uh, right on the, on the border with Moldova, but then also requiring them to be there while they can't be in the fight elsewhere in the country. Now, keep in mind that if they're able to clean up Mariupol and conduct oper conclude operations there, then those same forces could potentially be moving west to the area with Odessa. The fighting continues here, day 23 of this war. Easter Sunday is rapidly approaching. What do you do to get ready for your Easter baskets, for your Easter giving? If you want to give to your church, if you want to give to your family, give to your friends, give to your kids, mypillow.com, utilize promo code POSO. Remember those three little words that every woman is longing to hear, promo code POSO. You go there, use the promo code, you can set it up right now, get all your gifts, get all your giving, you get it ready. It's very simple, you have it delivered. You, By the way, you can also get gift cards if you want to put those in baskets, you can do whatever you want, mypillow.com, promo code Poso. This next story, it's something that, <clears throat> you know, I got to say, it's really, I wish it was surprising. I wish I could say this was surprising, but it's not. 
So this headline comes to us by way of Zero Hedge. It's by Paul Joseph Watson. 30% of Ukrainian refugees, quote unquote, are actually from other countries. They're from third nations. Around a third of Ukrainian refugees arriving in France are actually economic migrants from other areas of the world, mostly North Africa and the Middle East, according to an investigation by newspaper Le Figaro. What does that mean? What's going on with that? Well, French presidential candidate Eric Zemmour had something to say about that. Take a listen. I know the immigration of Ukrainians are a Christian European people and are therefore much closer to our French people than the waves of migration from Arab Muslim or Middle Eastern countries. I know it very well, so I know very well that it would pose less a problem in terms of assimilation and acculturation. What I don't want is for there to be a tsunami based on emotion as there was for little Alan. And we had one million or even more Syrian immigrants besides countless Algerians, Moroccans, Africans. Now we know over two million refugees have left Ukraine at this point. About 5,000 have already arrived in France from Ukraine, with some being transported by bus from Berlin and others arising, arriving by rail and air. However, of those arriving, this is Le Figaro, about 30% are migrants of other nationalities. 7.5% are from Algeria, 3.5% are from the Ivory Coast or Morocco. There's also Indians, Kyrgyzstan nationals, uh, Congo, Cameroon, Pakistan, Nigeria, China, all of whom were claiming to be Ukrainian. The incentive for economic migrants is to obtain asylum in France. And it's clear, given the immediate blanket refugee status, guaranteed accommodation, as well as education, financial, and medical support. So understand what's going on, right? Understand what's going on. That, yes, you do have refugees, the same way that we had in the Syria crisis. But under international law, and this is something that Poland has brought up again and again and again, under international law, a refugee is someone who flees a war zone to the first safe country. France is not the first safe country after Ukraine. Germany is not the first safe country after Ukraine, Austria, et cetera, et cetera, right? It would be Poland or Hungary or Romania, Moldova, or by the way, also back into Russia and Belarus, because you do have a lot of people fleeing the fighting and going into Russia. This also represents part of the issue with this whole situation to begin with, because some of the people do identify as Russian and some of them are, uh, nearly all of them are Russian speaking as well. So understand though, you've got a situation where I think we get this, right? A lot of those people who left saw it as a free ticket to the EU and you've got people who also probably, by the way, made it what, you know, why do we have so many of these people from other countries in Ukraine in the first place? Well, they got there through these migrant programs that were being pushed by the EU, pushed by Angela Merkel back when she was still in power, all the way starting in 2015, right? When over 1 million refugees made it from Syria and Turkey and other parts of the Middle East into the EU. It's the same mass migration. And now you're seeing more of that because people are saying, well, they had come to Ukraine in the first place. Now they're moving across Europe because they've got a free ticket. Because remember, Ukraine is not a member state of the EU, right? So they do have a visa program, but in order to go into the EU, right, to be in the EU, keep in mind, that you get a tax status, you get benefits, you get education, you get financial support, very, very generous social programs, right? So this is going to be, again, a very strong situation that the EU is going to have to deal with 
not only for the people who are from these third countries, but also for the Ukrainian national um, refugees to begin with. Because the question is going to become, will the EU be able to sustain that through their social programs, or will the social welfare system lead to more financial problems for the EU? I've been a federal judge for eight years, and I have a duty of independence. I clerked for three federal judges before I became a judge, and they were models of judicial independence. And what that has meant is that I know very well what my obligations are, what my duties are, not to rule with partisan advantage in mind. Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown Jackson is facing some blowback from Senator Josh Hawley, who put out a tweet thread, and he wrote, I've been researching the record of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, reading her opinions, articles, interviews, and speeches. I've noticed an alarming pattern, especially when it comes to Judge Jackson's treatment of sex offenders, especially those preying on children. Obviously, those are clearly the worst type of sex offenders in the entire country, the worst type of sex offenders there could be, the people who would abuse children. He goes through and says she has a pattern of letting child porn offenders off the hook for their appalling crimes, both as a judge and a policymaker. She's been advocating it for it since law school. This goes beyond soft on crime. I'm concerned that this is a record that endangers our children. As far back as her time in law school, Judge Jackson has questioned making convicts register as sex offenders, saying it leads to stigmatization and ostracism. She suggested public policy is driven by a climate of fear, hatred, and revenge against sex offenders. And so there's a very interesting, a very interesting comment that she made in one of her statements where she goes, listen to this. I'm wondering whether you could say that there is, that there could be a less serious child pornography offender who is engaging in the type of conduct in the group experience level because their motivation is the challenge or to use the technology. They're very sophisticated technologically, but they aren't necessarily that interested in the child pornography piece of it. She also wrote, I had mistakenly assumed that child pornography offenders are pedophiles. So I'm trying to understand this category of non-pedophiles who obtain child pornography. Are those the same people who you are saying are the non-sexually motivated offenders. I don't know what's going on here, but I do hear someone that it sounds like is making excuses in the name of reform, in the name of, of social justice, for covering up these people who are conducting acts of trafficking in, possessing, distributing child pornography, which obviously has a victim, the victim being the child being abused and thus creating a market and facilitating that market for them, right? That's not her job as a judge to dig into what the person's motivations are in a sense. I understand for sentencing guidelines, right? That does become an issue, but this isn't just one case. This is a pattern of cases that Senator Hawley has identified. And remember, the Senate is split right down the middle. It's 50-50. So if they want to push her through before midterms, and it does look like they want to do that, they are going to need all 50 Democratic senators to vote for her. 
So will Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, West Virginia and Arizona, who are seen as independent, seen as moderate, will they go along with this? And I'd love to hear their answer to what exactly is going on with these statements, which to me sound absolutely disgusting. And that's all the time we have here. Cumin Events Daily. Remember, our promise, our oath, our solemn vow to you. Be good, be brief, be gone. Your homework for us. Share this out with one of your normie friends and give us your five-star review. Today's top stories we discussed. The New York Times admitting that the Hunter Biden laptop was authentic. We got into day 23 of the war in Ukraine. We talked about how 30% of the Ukrainian refugees are actually from other countries. And we really broke down Senator Josh Hawley's criticisms of Katanji Brown-Jackson and her previous rulings. But before we go... It's time for today's history break. Today in the year 2000, Chen Shui-bian was elected president of Taiwan. He was the first pro-independence candidate to be elected. Earlier today, the CCP sent a carrier strike group through the Taiwan Straits. So understand while we're talking about Ukraine, things are heating up in the Far East. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, you have my permission to lay ashore.